Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This month, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra is having a double suffrage celebration. The second of the two concerts is The Mother of Us All, Virgil Thompson's opera with a libretto by Gertrude Stein. RPO Music Director Ward Stair and Director Susan Stone Lee are here to walk us through it. Welcome to your studios, both of us, as we delve into the mother of us all. Um, let's start with the creation of this uh, this piece. Ward, Virgil Thompson commissioned this, and he chose Gertrude Stein. This was his second collaboration with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. Their first one was uh, <laughs> an interesting um, work, I think, entitled three or four saints and three acts and of course there are a lot more than both there are a lot more saints and there are a lot more acts and it's kind of a big hulking uh confusing work um but it's it's interesting you know i I don't know it very well uh to be honest with you but um their second collaboration i think had a lot more focus uh in the subject of susan b anthony and um i believe the story if i if i've got it right is that um Virgil Thompson got the commission and contacted Gertrude, and he said, I want it to be a a historical uh, American figure, you know, from some time in the last hundred years. And um, it was Gertrude Stein who suggested Susan B. Anthony, and then from there they were off to the races. So if if you could, Susan, talk to us a little bit about the use of Gertrude Stein's language and the, the way she approached this, this topic that she agreed to do, Susan B. Anthony. Sure. She, Gertrude Stein's writing style is very specific. Those who um, who know of her and know of her work know the specificity with which I'm speaking, that it's, it's just got, uh, it kind of almost spins in circles. And so um, what she has done is taken the information that she has from different political gatherings and speeches done by Susan B. Anthony and other historic figures. And she has interlaced that with a combination of discussions about traditional relationships, both between people and between classes, and um, and the idea of how stalwart those traditions are. And so she is taking the words of Susan B. Anthony and making a lot of um, making a lot of points in a very short amount of time. So, for instance, in the wedding, um, there is a wedding happening on stage, while at the same time there is an extensive discussion happening between th- between women about the merits of marriage and if marriage is um, for protection or if it's for salvation or what it what it could mean and what would be what the value of it is and then at the same time this wedding is being celebrated as a tradition in the way that we celebrate weddings um, seemingly almost without thought so she really pairs these traditional concepts with questions about what they are really, what what the psychology is behind them. She gives us a lot of characters. 
She does. Some are contemporary of Susan B's. Some are not. She even writes herself and and um, Virgil Thompson in as well. They begin as narrators, right? They do. They begin as narrators, and then through the show, they become a part of the ensemble uh, more. And Gertrude Stein really employed a lot of her collegiate studies uh, of psychology in this libretto, along with a seeming affinity for Einstein's theory of relativity. So we have these characters that lived at different time periods, may not have ever crossed paths, or crossed paths in a very uh, far-fetched way. And then we also have those characters, speaking of characters who come further down the line to us in chronological order um, as though they are all contemporaries. So it's a bit of a wormhole where all of these characters and historic figures are functioning on the same plane, um, even though we know as an educated populace that these people were not all alive at the same time and in the same room. And, uh, and then in addition to that, there is a character that is an angel, that is an apparition. So. Um, so there's there's a real uh, it's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the music is really interesting too. Uh, it's it's a it's a musical crazy quilt. Um, Virgil Thompson said a memory book of Victorian play games and passions, with its gospel hymns and cocky marches, its sentimental ballads, waltzes, darned fool ditties, and intoned sermons, a souvenir of all those sounds and kinds of tunes that were once the music of rural America. Mm. I listened to this and I was surprised, Ward, at how charming and delightful and tuneful this is. It really is, and it's sort of like a, it is like a patchwork quilt in a way of Americana. But you have to remember, to quote Gertrude Stein's libretto, quilts are not crazy, they are kind. <laughs> That's actually a line from the opera. Um, <clears throat> but no, it is It is quite, uh, it's very harmonic, it's very melodic, it's very tuneful. He does use dissonance, however, uh, in places, uh, I think, very skillfully to underscore uh, either something that's going on in the drama, like with Joe the Loiterer, a lot of times the bass line is off by a half step as mm-hmm. uh, it supports him and it sounds, it's meant to sort of make you cock your head a little bit and say, oh, what's, you know, something's, something's a little bit off with this guy or with this situation. Um, and of course, there's also dissonance used, um, you know, for some of the, the, the fighting and the battle and the conflict that Susan B. encountered throughout uh, her courageous uh, mission in her life. Um, but those things aside, overall, I would say it's very tuneful. You'll come away from it with far more earworms than you may have thought uh, going into it. It's it's really got a lot of tunes that stick with you, and some that you'll recognize, too, nursery rhymes and things like that. It's an interesting um, project that, that, that they put together, and, and one that, well, there's no plot. So if there is no plot, Susan, what's the point? What, what point are they trying to get us to? Valid, absolutely valid question. Um, I think there's a real important question being asked in classical music programming across the nation, and that is, why does this piece need to be done now? Why does this story need to be told now? And I think that this particular piece, um, regardless of the year we are in, the part of history that we are experiencing now, 100 years later, is important in its own right for what it says about how long it takes to make an effect change. And Susan B. Anthony spent her entire life 
dedicated to this and other noble um, changes in American society and never actually saw the 1920 bill passed. So she was dedicated to something that she never got the satisfaction of the culmination of. And um, and it reminds me of the, the adage that you plant a tree knowing that you'll never sit under its shade. Um, I think that this piece is really about how much effort and how much time it takes to affect change and and that that effort is valuable no matter how long it takes. There's an irony in that. <laughs> Gertrude Stein never got to see this done. It, yes, isn't it? Um, isn't, and isn't that just... The, the stories around opera and classical music I just find so fascinating. The composers and the librettists, they're just amazing characters in their own right. And so they give us these wonderful experiences that are... Um, uplifting and esoteric and, and emotionally exercising and um, and it, it's a it's a gift and, and and I think in many ways this piece is a challenge uh, I think it I think it challenges people to to evaluate how far we've come in a hundred years um, and it, it doesn't need to be said but I will mention that in the 1920 uh, amendment it was, an amendment for white women to vote. Men and women of color did not actually get their right to vote until 1965, I believe, um, in full effect. And so we're not even 100 years into our entire nation being able to vote or having the, the ability or the accessibility to vote. That was actually a debate that Susan B. Anthony had with Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. that Frederick Douglass wanted black men to vote, but yes, not the women. You know, I visited the Susan B. Anthony house yesterday, and um, the docents there are lovely, educated, wonderful people. And uh, I asked them about that particular rift, and and Susan B. Anthony had said some very harsh words with regard to um, men of color voting. Um, they also were very clear that what they understood of Susan B. Anthony, her life, and the other people that she was surrounded with was that race was not an issue for her, that she felt divided people. Um, what I took away from that experience with the, with the docent was that that particular instance um, when Frederick Douglass was consulted on those amendments, um, he had an opportunity to be all-inclusive. He had an opportunity to really push that. And from what I understand, Susan B. Anthony did not feel as though he did and that, and that he should have. So in, in, historic, in a historic context, that's, that's a sore spot for sure. So let's that, that takes us directly to Joe the lawyer. Joe the lawyer, who, who's a man who seems to only want to support women's causes when it requires nothing of him. And I, I wonder, is this kind of a warning to armchair feminists? It's not mm -hmm. enough to say you want this to go through. You've got to get out there and really work it. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I would say it's a warning to armchair anyone <laughs> because it it takes it takes action it takes momentum um, it takes people showing up and being present and being indignant about 
the injustice that they see. And that's how change gets affected. The the one point I will go back to is, is that sometimes you have to do that for 100 years in order for it to come to fruition. But that doesn't put any less value on the effort you make in doing so. There's a line, um, Ward, men fear we are afraid. They fear women. They fear each other. Mm-hmm. It it seems that, there, that the fear is more than just women being equal. It's something else. I mean, you're a guy. What does, <laughs> it, what does that mean to you, this line, men are afraid, they fear women, they fear each other? I, you know, I haven't thought about it deeply. Um, there are so many lines that open themselves up to hours and hours of reflection and thought. <laughs> I, I, I don't know exactly what she means by that. I mean, she may, there's another line that you remind me of where Susan B is talking about, um, the difference between, I, I can't remember the word for word what it is, but the difference between how women are afraid and how men are afraid. And she says, you know, when a hen sees a, a hawk or an eagle, um, she's afraid, uh, but she's only afraid for her children. Men are afraid for themselves. And I think, so there's this idea that's being subtly put out there that, you know, men are more about fighting each other and, you know, more self-centered women are the ones who really take care of the village. And they have a more global, uh, one could say a healthier perspective on, you know, community than these men who are always fighting and creating problems and opposition and all that. That line is so um, poignant. Yeah. I feel like it really is poignant. Um, She also goes on later to say that when women get the vote, that they that they could turn to be just like men and become just afraid. And it's her worry. Yeah, that's that's her concern. And and from my personal perspective, I feel as though that's partly true. I think we have succumbed to a lot of fear. And part of that may be because we are not actively getting out and and making our protestations about the things that we that we feel are unjust and the whole idea of voting and fear is maybe a whole nother podcast in and of itself but um but her um her hitting that nail on the head so hard a couple of times is um really powerful we cannot retrace our steps going forward may be the same as going backward yep absolutely let's talk about um that final the final aria oh you're you're smiling (laughs) yes (laughs) you want to talk about this so it's all my long life it's so beautiful yeah it's gorgeous it's a gorgeous piece of music and i think that uh what brought me to the conclusion that the center of this piece is how long and how much effort one must make to affect change is based in this last scene Um, because she says life is strife and that is true and her long life was the struggle for this amendment to be passed and for this right to be to be uh, not given but uh, released to women or re- given back to women. I'm not sure how to say that, but do you know what I mean? Um, granted. Granted. I, yeah. I mean, uh, someone I will know how to say it. Uh, it it's not me, clearly. Um, but 
she does say my long life and and it's and it's held out on really beautiful notes that are really that are sung beautifully um, by Elena, who's who's our Susan B. And and her long life was this war. Her long life was this battle. And that um, that final scene to me really indicated how to approach all of the material that came before it. And musically speaking, too, uh, well, first of all, for those of you who may not know, the last scene of the opera takes place after the 19th Amendment has been passed and women do have the right to vote legally. Um, And so there's a statue being unveiled of Susan B. and there's a ceremony. You see a lot of the characters that were in the drama before who are older now sort of getting together reminiscing. And Susan B. shows up in the form of a spirit, a ghost, and witnesses this ceremony. And then after everybody leaves, she sings this beautiful... um, kind of uh, epilogue to the whole thing, which is my long life. And the music um, is, it's another, it's like a religious hymn. It's got a very solemn quality about it. Um, But the harmonies are also very soft. It ends on a, what we call a plagal cadence, which is like the amen cadence at the end. So it's not a very strong dominant cadence. And it really gives one the impression that there are a lot of questions left unanswered and there's a lot of work yet to be done. So I think in a way, um, the statement at the end is, you know, you have to think about all these things and you have to realize that, yes, we've come so far, but there's still a long way to go and we have to keep keep it up. When I listen to this, uh, Susan, it struck me like when I go to see a movie by Robert Altman, you know, it, it's just this... There's this consciousness, a stream of consciousness thing going on, and there might not be a solid plot, but you can't impose on it. You have to sit back and just let it wash right through you. Exactly. Um, This is not a piece that you can make assessments of in the moment. This is a piece that you will go to see um, that will challenge you or that you will enjoy or that will... um, or that will put you in uh, a sort of cognitive dissonance. And then a day or two later, then you'll be able to look back on it and say, oh, I see that whole experience for what it was. It's not meant to be, the scenes are not meant to be individual and cut out and stand on their own. This is not only a piece that requires an ensemble of singers, but it is an ensemble work in the sense that you really need each and every piece of it in order to get the full picture and to be able to then step further away from the picture to get the larger view. And your ensemble comes from the Eastman School of Music, so that is very exciting. And um, how has that been working out? Oh, it's been wonderful. They, um, they're great colleagues. They're, they were all very prepared right from the beginning, and I think they really enjoyed this this work. The cast is nearly thirty roles. I mean, it's it's really <laughs> huge, and um, all the the smaller roles and well, and and the bigger ones too also serve as the chorus because there's a chorus uh, involved as well. And with that number of people, it it works perfectly. Um, and I think they've they've really enjoyed sort of peeling back the layers and they're there's so much there's so much to talk about and and you know like Susan said you have to sort of let it wash over you and but there are moments like there's a big debate scene between Susan B Anthony and Daniel Webster and of course they never really debated in in life but they both were you know 
known for their skills in that forum. Um, and so having them pitted against each other, it's a very interesting scene. And there's a lot of action swirling on around it. It really is like a political meeting would have been back in that time where everybody's, you know, they're discussing things that have nothing to do with the subject matter that they're debating. And then they tune in every once in a while and you get these different strains of conversations popping up here and there. And in the middle of it are these two titans sort of squaring off and debating. Uh, and so there's a lot, it's easy to miss some of the subtleties, but one of the things that, um, that is in that scene is that Daniel Webster keeps referring to Susan B. Anthony as sir because his rationale is, you know, a woman, a woman it should not be allowed to debate and therefore the rules don't have any, you know, feminine pronouns in them. So he calls her, it's kind of ridiculous, but he calls her sir. And the audience, I, I love Susan um, staged it so that it sort of draws attention to that moment where the, the audience actually stops and reacts when he calls her sir which i think is good to help just like that one little moment you define in the action so that it doesn't get missed um and you know there are a lot of uh, really subtle things that that only start to emerge after you live with the piece for a little while the other thing that i would i would note is that um some of the most beautiful music uh, or uh, almost all the most beautiful music with the exception of the last scene in susan b's solo i think is sung by the men to the women they love, which I think is interesting too. Mm -hmm. There are these two couple relationships uh, between John Adams and Constance Fletcher and Joe the Loiterer and Indiana Elliott, which are very interesting, the dynamics between these these couples. Um, and the music that goes along with it, I think, says a lot. Susan, I'm making an assumption here. You have never done this before, the mother of us all. This is my first time with the piece, yes. So when you got it, and you started listening to it, and you started living with it, what were your thoughts? That I needed to do more of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, I spent a lot of time looking it within the text to see the, um, the, mar the markers, the large markers, the, um, the points that I knew would be clear to the audience, um, and that I could um, mark for myself as uh, goalposts in a way. Um, and so I, I then went into research about the three people most involved in this being Susan B. Anthony, Gertrude Stein, and Virgil, uh, Virgil Thompson. And what I began to realize was that I needed to know more about Gertrude Stein almost more than I needed to know about Susan B. Anthony. Because interpreting or trying to interpret Gertrude Stein's writing style um, is quite a task. Um, and and a, there are people who specialize in it and, um, and know certainly so much more than I do. And the little bit that I was able to understand and glean and use to interpret this piece, it, it, it helped me to be fascinated with the way in which she spins words into contradictions and then spins the contradictions right back out. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that it's a brilliant um, concept of her to utilize because humans are full of contradictions. All of us are in the way we think and do and act and feel, and we can't help it. It's just who we are. Um, and I think that it was genius of her to know that 
linear writing such as we see it in novels, which is so clear, is not actually the way we think. It, it's not the actual internal dialogue of, of, a, of a human. Um, so I really needed to decide what the major points were that I felt Gertrude Stein and um, Virgil Thompson were trying to emphasize to the audience. Um, and then from there, I, I just started using uh, everything in between to develop those larger or those, those goalposts. This is not uh, that far removed from doing Shakespeare. Or, it's it's and, not, actually. And in fact, when, um, when I spoke with the singers about this, I, I referenced a YouTube video that is from the 1970s of Sir Ian McKellen breaking down um, the Shakespeare soliloquy, uh, She Should Have Died Hereafter. And what he says in that uh, maybe 10-minute video about it is that he believes that Shakespeare gave the language and the imagery not to the audience but to the actor or the interpreter so that the actor or interpreter could embody the humanity of that moment and express that to the audience in a human way in an emotional and energetic way that the words themselves alone may not um, so he goes on in this video to break it down into very specific um, pictures and and what each of these things mean to him and how he puts it together in his visual memory um, and and it's really incredible to see when he does that piece afterwards it's incredible to see the emotion that he uses all the way through and watch it build and change and ebb and flow. And that, to me, in that moment, was far more powerful than just the words alone would have been. Virgil Thompson said, this is a foolproof opera. And <laughs> I would love your take on it, each of you. Ford? Foolproof. Um, well, how is it foolproof? I suppose the music I think the fact that the libretto is so dense and multi-layered um, and the music is really not is an interesting combination so maybe that's what he's talking about I think where where the text may seem confusing and bewildering the music is very straightforward and and vice versa in, in some ways um, so maybe in that way I think anyone could come and, and walk out taking something positive with them. And he wrote it very quickly, too. He did. That's true. That's true. Um, he didn't spend a lot of time um, agonizing over it, and so it feels like a very honest, straightforward uh, statement. And, and it is, and it should be, and it S works. Susan, you gave us a, a good laugh on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking I would like to know what his definition of fool is. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, is, the, you know, is the fool us who are doing it, or is the fool the audience? Or, you know, there's just, there's just that larger question. Um, but the, the music is really, uh, is, is really helpful to the audience um, as I sit and watch it as an audience member um, because it in a musical way establishes what we see as um, uh, heteronormative Christian uh, 
traditions by the hymns, by the um, the children's games, uh, the references to those. And then in music later on really begins to make, to question all of those traditional things that we heard earlier. So in a way, I think it's foolproof because yes, the music does really give the audience this uh, ability to understand the concept, even if the words and the action on stage are not as helpful as they might be. So um, it, I think it, it could be considered foolproof, although I'm not, I'm not sure I'd, I'd put money on it. <laughs> Unlike Ward, who has to stand in the middle of all of the action mm -hmm. for the whole time, mm -hmm. you get to walk out, sit down, mm -hmm. and watch. We, have you been able to separate yourself and just watch? And if so, what has it given you? Hmm. You know, last night was really the first time that I got to sit and watch without, without thinking uh, critically, and I mean that in the problem-solving way. Um, and, and what I was struck by was really the music. I had spent so much time with the text and I had spent so much time, um, looking at how to tell the verbal story that when I sat back and saw what the singers were doing in addition to what the orchestra was playing and the way in which they play it, which is just phenomenal, it was, it was moving and funny in ways that I did not anticipate. Um, so it's it's been a really nice gift to be able to have that kind of cumulative experience as an audience member. I want to thank you for giving that gift to all of us, Ward. It was inspired. It was an inspired choice. Your choice of opera this year. That's right. I'm very glad that we've uh, presented it this week. I think it's the perfect way to cap off our two-week celebration of Susan B. Anthony. I'd like to thank very much Ward Stair and Susan Stonelee for talking with me today. If you'd like information about the RPO Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.